Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles, your favorite true crime podcast. I am Donnie, and with me is a man who's starting a petition to have all the cuss words put in instruction manuals. It's Dale. <laughs> It'd save you a lot of problems, wouldn't it? It would. At least you wouldn't throw them away then. That's just, a good deal about the trash so you can figure out how to put it together. <laughs> just get all your frustrations out in one swoop. That's right. Yeah. Get them done. Yeah, because I'll put something together. I'm putting some words with it. Putting a few words in there. Oh, uh, yeah. Colorful adjectives. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and then I'm sitting there trying to watch a YouTube video, even though I've got instructions with me, how to put it together. Then you can listen to them because. Yeah. <laughs> and I listen to somebody else because. That's right. You can find out the cuss spots so you were to put them in. Yeah. That's I right. mean, it, all, it really ought to be a thing. Let's start recreating all manuals with colorful language cuss words yeah <laughs> this is the cuss word version it, may, it would be fun though really yeah <laughs> what's going on dude same old same old bro. same old same old you know it right back hey, in the house hey, back in the crack house ready ready to roll doing an episode doing it up you got any shout outs anybody want to talk about dude we do check this out hey hey how about that hey bring it on yeah so this comes to us from Freeport, Florida. Ooh. This comes from I am Tyler Pope, and it says, "Best podcast in the nation." What's up, guys? It's Tyler from Freeport, Florida. I started following y'all about a year ago. I found out about the Crack House when y'all covered Kimberly Lauren Raymer, uh, which is not too far from where I'm at now. I've been listening to you guys ever since. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, thank you, Tyler Pope. Heck yeah. Thanks a lot, man. We appreciate you, and thanks for taking the time to go on and give us that five star. Yes, we do appreciate it. It's pretty darn cool. Thanks a lot. Very, very cool. If anybody else wants to be like Tyler Pope and go to Apple Podcast, please click that five star and write something in the box. Yeah. Just write something. That way we know about it. I cannot tell you how much that helps. It does. It's amazing. It does. It really helps a lot. It helps us out, too. It makes us feel good, like at least y'all care. Oh, yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it just blows me away. Yeah. And speaking of caring, w- not caring, like in... A person named Karen? Yeah, yeah caring. Caring. How about that? Me, me unsouthernize that. Speaking of caring, <laughs> we had this. It come in about a month ago. It's from Matthew Reed. And I'm sorry, Matthew, that I just now seeing this, because they do not give us a, a notification when you guys do this. But this comes from Spotify. And it was on uh, episode 178, The Unsolved Murder of Molly Bish. And it says, awesome episode. You have the best true crime podcast, guys. Looking forward to more episodes. I'm listening from Australia. Wow. Wow. Down under. Yeah. He's way down under. Mate. Yeah, mate. So, anyway, that's pretty cool. Thanks a lot. Thanks for taking the time to go on Spotify and leaving us a little message there. And that's uh, pretty yeah. cool. I'll try to go back and get some more of these and, and uh, check it out and pretty cool coming from australia donnie it is cool how about that because uh you can leave a five star on spotify and you can comment on each episode yeah it's got yeah. a little question on there it is very very cool yeah ne- neato <laughs> you can be like him and go there and get you a vegemite and sandwich and leave a five star review <laughs> all right then yeah <laughs> muscles and full of brussels or whatever yeah man from brussels yeah there you yeah. go <laughs> it's full of muscles okay yeah i think yeah. we've drug that out long enough yeah I'm all hell. <laughs> but yeah, that is pretty dang cool. We appreciate everybody that listens and joins us on our podcast, yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, we love it. We yeah, love it. I, I can't get over it. It just blows me away sometimes. Speaking of uh, Australia, we have a friend out there, Felicity, with her podcast of Unknown Passage. Go check it out if you can. Yes. Pretty neat stuff. Yeah, she does some great work, man. Shout out to her. I hope she's doing well. I hadn't talked to her in a while, but I hope it's all good. Yep. All right, then, man. Other than that, we're going to get going on this episode, man. It's time to get ours down, man. Let's roll. Because... This episode actually came in as a request. Somebody suggested this episode. Shelly Stitching. Yeah. Yeah. 
and we appreciate her chiming in and wanting us to do this. And we got to digging into it, man. It's a pretty crazy case. It's a very crazy case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we're talking about a guy by the name of Herb Baumeister. Herbert Richard Baumeister. Yeah. Yeah. And just a little bit of background on Herb Baumeister. He was born on April the 7th of 1947 mm-hmm. to Dr. Herbert E. and Elizabeth Baumeister of Indianapolis, Indiana. E for Eugene. Yes. <laughs> now, Herb, he was the oldest of four children. Mm-hmm. His father, like I said, he was a doctor, but he was an anesthesiologist. Right. And soon after their last child was born, they moved to a pretty high affluent area of Indianapolis. It was called Washington Township. Hmm. And Dale, by all accounts, Herb, he had a pretty normal childhood. Yeah, I'm sure he's pretty well off there. Yeah. He probably had everything he wanted, his dad being a doctor. and Oh, yeah. Yeah, had a pretty good childhood. But it was reported once he reached adolescence, things started to change. Yeah. But not in a good way. No. No. His behavior get a little antisocial and et cetera. Yeah, because he began to obsess over vile and disgusting things yeah <laughs> and he developed a macabre sense of humor and appeared to lose his ability to judge right from wrong yeah he could say that and there were yeah and there were rumors circulating about him urinating on his teacher's desk yeah and that's also said you know he had some of his friends recalled him having like a urophilia and then kind of he would always ponder what it would be like to taste human urine yeah that's what he was into yeah yeah, yeah. So even at a young age very young yeah and reportedly would even chase the boys around the playground going give me a drink give me a drink yeah so now we don't know for sure but that was that was something that we found in, in research yeah that was uh some of his uh friends he had would come forward later telling those stories mm-hmm. yeah and it was reported at one time he had found a dead crow yes uh either at school or on the side of the road somewhere. Yeah, I've seen it both ways. Yeah. But he had found a dead crow, and he put it in his pocket. And then when they got back to the classroom. He was in a hell of a pocket. Yeah. Well, he got this dead crow, and he put it on the teacher's desk. Mm-hmm. Just to see a reaction, I guess? I guess. Shock it, factor, I guess. There was also another one, like you said, those uh, uh, schoolmates that came forward and said that there was another time where he was actually seen playing with a dead crow and i don't know if this is the same crow or for a different one i don't know if they had a problem with crows dying around the school or whatever but actually he was like sticking his fingers into the crow and said he was pretty aroused by this yeah so yeah you can see his his behavior is a little off kilter off the charts yeah 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 but it was at this point his friends and his peers they began distancing themselves from him you think yeah <laughs> And they didn't want to be associated with his morbid behaviors. Watch out for old Herb over He's streaming again. Mm-hmm. And this way before it was cool. Yes. <laughs> and his teachers, they reached out to his parents for some help. Yes. And his parents had also noticed some changes in mm-hmm. Herb. Yes. So this is when um, the dad sent him in for some medical evaluations. Mm-hmm. And it revealed that Herb was schizophrenic and suffered from multiple personality disorder. Yeah. But what was done to help him was unclear. Yeah, if anything. And it appears that they didn't seek any kind of treatment for him. Well, if they did, you know, I'm sure his dad probably had everything suppressed. He didn't want, want that getting out, Yeah, you know, him being who he was. 
they probably had connections to have it suppressed. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So if anything was ever done, it, it's you can't find anything out about it. No, because you know, in, during this time in the '60s when this was going on, they would use like electro shock therapy and things like that for yeah, and like first generation medicines and stuff like that. It was pretty not good. Yeah, yeah. So it was never known what they did to Herb yeah. to treat his conditions. If anything. Exactly. Right. But Herb, he continued in public high school and maintaining his grades. Yeah. He but, did good in grades. But yeah, he everything, did. Everything else, he was just, you know, antisocial. So, and I guess because of his weirdness, to quote unquote, he was not definitely not part of the in crowd. It is, he didn't fit in. Yeah, he didn't uh, do any kind of sports or anything or. And he wasn't part of the in crowd or the popular cliques. Exactly. I mean, he ended up spending a lot of time by himself, and he definitely didn't date anybody. So. No, he yeah. didn't. So he's just, you know, pretty much spending all his time alone. So it was up to him to either be accepted into the group or be alone. Yeah. And he finished his high school year in solitude. Mm-hmm. He didn't have any friends or anybody just because of his weird behaviors. Well, I'm sure the jokes were probably funny at first, and then it's kind of like, wait, he ain't really jerking. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He really likes this stuff. So in 1965, Herb attended Indiana University. Mm-hmm. And again, he started dealing with being an outcast right. because of his strange behavior. Well, I probably thought when he went went off to university, you know, maybe he's got a, you know, a brand new chance to start out here because he's not going to take over, his yeah. own reputation with him, you know. But basically, he just started doing the same stuff there as he did when he was in school. So it was kind of like weirding everybody out. Yeah. And after the first semester, he dropped out. He dropped out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And pressured by his father, he returned in 1967 to study anatomy, mm-hmm. but dropped out again before the semester ended. Right. And this time, being at Indiana University wasn't a total loss because he had met a young lady there by the name of Juliana Sater. And she was a high school journalism teacher and a part-time Indiana University student. Right. Yeah, well, he actually met her because they had both joined the Young Republicans group or club or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where they met because she wasn't a full-time student. Like I said, she just came in and was taking this, but they both had joined this this club. It was just a Young Republicans group because uh, they were both extremely conservative politically. Right. And they shared a entrepreneurial spirit, and they both dreamed of owning their own businesses. Yeah. And, you know, when he's doing this, he's just doing, I think, basically do it probably to make his dad happy because, you know, it's an ultra-conservative family. Yep. And that's something that he thought he would try to do that to please his dad. Yep. And in 1971, they got married. They did. Mm-hmm. But six months into the marriage, for unknown reasons, uh, Herb's father had committed him to a mental institution. Right. Where, where he stayed for two months. So whatever happened... Didn't ruin their marriage, Dale. No, huh? and actually, his wife had said he was he was hurting and needed some help. Yeah, and so so when he came back, she was really thrilled just to have him back. She really loved him. So yeah, for whatever happened, then but she uh, she supported him one hundred percent. Yes. Yep. Despite this odd behavior, but now Herb's father he pulled some strings and he got him a job as a copy boy at the Indianapolis Star. This is a newspaper there, running reporters' stories between desk and performing. I guess other errands around the office. Right, like a low-level uh, or entry-level position. Yeah. Yeah. But Herb, he got into it pretty good. He did. And he was wanting to do good and start a new career. hmm But unfortunately, his constant efforts to gain 
positive feedback from the, I guess, the brass, uh, it got irritating. Yeah. And he obsessed over ways to fit in and and with his coworkers, but it never succeeded. No, because he come in brass and kind of treating his coworkers like he was better than him. Yeah, he did. Yeah. I think he wore a suit to work every day, just coming there and just trying to be overly, way over above his position. I guess. Over his pay grade, too, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he left his job at the Indianapolis Star, and he got him another job at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Right. Which is the, in our state of North Carolina, it's called the Department of Motor Vehicles. Yeah, so it's the DMV here, so every time I see this BMV, it it throws me off. Yeah. (laughs) But the same difference. Yeah, it's the, yeah, motor vehicles. Yes. Yeah. But Herb, he began his entry-level job there. Doing the same thing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. with a different attitude. Right. At the newspaper, he was childlike and overeager, you know, I guess displaying hurt feelings when he didn't get recognition. He was pouting. Yeah. But at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, he came off as bossy and aggressive toward his co-workers, mm-hmm. lashing out at them. And for no reason, he was emulating what he perceived as a good supervisory behavior. Yeah, what but, he, he, was doing but he was really damn good at his job. Yes. And that's the thing. But he could, you know, he would go and scold other workers, but they couldn't really say nothing. They couldn't say, well, you're not doing it either because he was spot on. He was, I mean, his work was exemplary. Yeah, he got good uh, reports and everything. And He was oppressing everybody. I mean, his attitude, and it might be a little weird, but, man, his work was killer. Yeah. But, again, while he was at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, he was labeled an oddball. Yeah. And his behavior was erratic. And his sense of priority was, at times, way off. Mm-hmm. And one year, at Christmas time, he sent a card to everyone at work that pictured him with a, another man. And both were dressed in holiday drag. Right. Yeah. And, you know, in the early 70s, it, he probably didn't see a, a lot of humor in that. No, it was I mean, a different it, time. It'd be, it'd be funny, I think. It'd be, it'd be great, actually. But, you know, but there's kind of a little before his time, you know, and talk around the water cooler that, that he heard was actually a closet homosexual in a nutcase. Yeah, that but, was the talk. Yeah, well, you know, there was another case where they said they knew that Herb actually had a, a cake in his disc drawer. Yeah, a piece of cake. Yeah, not to snack on. He just had it there, and he would come in every morning, and he'd pull out his drawer and look at the cake. And he was watching it deteriorate and, I guess, rot <laughs> yeah yeah slowly over time and it's like he was fascinated with like you say like even with the dead animals and stuff like that and then then the deterioration of looking at it to see how it, see what happened to it i guess to the piece of cake yeah yeah so it's kind of that's kind of weird so i can see why they would think he's a quote-unquote nutcase so pretty wild yeah I, i've never heard anything like that yeah that's that's a little different yeah yeah i'm gonna keep this cake in my drawer and watch it <laughs> deteriorate yeah yes but after 10 years, Herb's poor relationship with his co-workers, he was recognized as an intelligent go-getter who produced results mm-hmm. and was promoted to program director. Yeah, that's what I've been trying to do. Yeah. You know? But yeah. in 1985, within a year of promotion he had yearned for, yep. he was terminated after they'd found out he urinated on a letter that was addressed to the then Indiana Governor Robert D. Orr. Yeah, there was talk that he had done this before because he he would butt heads with his boss, and when he'd get mad, he'd go in there and he'd say he'd go in there and, and then urinate on his desk. So this was the same thing he was doing in school, right? It was also reported, you know, he's doing that at school. So he's now he's still doing it. He's he's not changed at all. He's just got older. Yeah, I think when they found out he had done this on this letter, that they uh, they told him he could quit, resign, and go, or 
they would fire him and if, and if he resigned they wouldn't say nothing outside outside to work yeah but if he didn't they would fire him and tell everybody that's right so he resigned <laughs> yeah so just uh, save face and just leave yeah yeah well you didn't want to go tell daddy so they're peeing on letters <laughs> right. you don't want you don't want daddy to know no but nine years into his marriage with juliana they started a family yes they did mm-hmm. their oldest marie was born in 1979 they had a son eric in 1981 and emily in 1984 but before herb had lost his job at the bureau of motor vehicles things seemed to be going well mm-hmm. so his wife juliana she quit her job to become a full-time mom but returned to work when herb couldn't find a steady work right yeah so he became this temporary stay-at-home dad he did which is probably not good no he's got too much time on his head but herb uh was a caring and loving father to his kids yep he is but then you know like i said he had too much time on his hands and then juliana didn't know but he began drinking a lot and then started hanging out at gay bars yes he did so i think he's this is the only place where he can go and actually be who he is because later on it would say that uh him and uh, Juliana only had sex six times. Yeah. In the 25 years they were married. Yes. Six times. And three of those times they conceived children. Right. So, yeah. she, so she says. Yeah, that would be putting up some red flags real quick. Yeah, you'd know something's up. Yeah. I mean, I know it's kind of a spoiler saying 25 years they was married, but anyway. It had also been reported that uh, Juliana had said in an interview that they didn't even have uh, sex on their wedding night. I don't think. And she said she never, ever saw him naked. Mm-mm. Just never. Said on the wedding night, he brought magazines and caught up on his magazine reading. And, yeah, they didn't consummate the marriage that night. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, he was an oddball, no doubt about it. Yeah, they should have been all kind of flags waving. Yeah. Pretty wild. So, so in September of 1985, Herb received a slap on the wrist after being charged in a hit-and-run accident mm. while driving drunk. And six months later, he was charged with stealing a friend's car and conspiracy to commit theft, but he beat both of those charges. Mm, it's always, it happens like this all the time, don't it? Yeah, just slap on the wrist. Mm-hmm. Now, meanwhile, he bounced between jobs while he began working at a thrift store. Yeah, and he didn't like his job at first. He, he's like, his job was beneath him. He just thought it was terrible. Yeah. Until he started paying attention and then learning, man, this is a lot of money to be made in this Yeah. Stuff. So over the next three years, he focused on learning the thrift shop business. Smart. Yes. Start paying attention. But during this time, his father had died. Yeah. He lost dad. But it was unknown what kind of impact this had on Herb. It wasn't reported at all. Well, I'm sure it was bad. Yep. Because, you know, all he really wanted to do was make him proud, I think. So in 1988, Herb borrowed $4,000 from his mom. And that would be like? Ten thousand four hundred, something like that today. Yes, pretty good chunk of change. Pretty good chunk. And Herb and his wife, they opened up a thrift store. They did, and they named it Save a Lot. Yeah, S A V dash A dash Lot. Yeah, not to be confused with the grocery chain. Yes, and they stocked it with gently used quality clothing, furniture, and other items. Mm-hmm. And a percentage of the store's profit went to the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis. Right. And their business was booming. And I'm sure, you know, that, that put them in a good spot, you know, in the community while they're, you know, they're making money, but they're also helping out a charity. That's right. So this profit was so strong in the first year, Dale, the Bowmeisters opened a second store. Right. So, you know, that 50000 turned to be basically 121000 today. That's pretty dang so good that's money. that's pretty good when you start with four. 
Yes. Yeah. So within three years of having lived paycheck to paycheck, they were rich. They felt rich. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh, I know. Man. So in 1991, the Bowmeisters moved into their dream home. Mm-hmm. This was an 18-acre horse ranch called Fox Hollow Farms. Wow. In an upscaled Westfield area, just outside of Indianapolis, Indiana, in Hamilton County. Yes. And the large, beautiful million-dollar semi-mansion had all the bells and whistles, man. Yeah, it was beautiful. Including a stable and an indoor swimming pool. You hear me? Indoor. Yeah, indoor, <laughs> yes. But remarkably, Herb had become well-respected, successful family man who gave to charities. Yeah. Yeah, well-respected man. It all looks good outside the doors. But unfortunately, stress from working so closely together soon followed. Yeah. From the start of the business, Herb started treating Juliana like an employee. Yeah, doing like he done always, yelling at everybody. Yeah, often yelling for no reason, too. And to keep the peace, she took a back seat on the business decisions. Yeah, now I think at least at one time, she went to where she was running one store while he ran the other. Yeah. So kind of like to get a, get a little space, I think. Mm-hmm. For a while, anyway. But the couple argued and separated on and off over the next several years. Mm. But the Save-A-Lot stores had a reputation for being clean and organized. Right. But the opposite could be said about their new home. Yeah. It's like a order house. Yeah. This meticulous maintained grounds became an overgrown with weeds and inside the rooms were a mess and housekeeping became a low priority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Except for the pool. Yeah. He seemed to really care about his pool. He did. And his wet bar. <laughs> yeah. It's filled with uh, extravagant decor, including mannequins. Yeah. And That's extravagant. Yeah, these mannequins. He, ain't creepy at all. He dressed them and positioned them to give the appearance of a lavish pool party. Yeah, so he could go down there and have himself a drink and hang out at the pool party. <laughs> all these damn mannequins. Yeah. Woo. But Creep to, city, man. I know, man, but <laughs> to escape the turmoil, Juliana and the kids often stayed with Herb's mom at her lake house at Lake Wawasi. Yeah. And she it was like a condominium she had there. Mm-hmm. But Herb usually stayed behind at the house to run the stores. Well, under under a ruse of running the stores. Yeah. So that's what he said. That's what he told her, yeah. Things is a little, a little bit different. Yeah. So, like we said, keeping his, keeping his mask on for now, but it's, it won't last long. Keeping up appearances. Yes. So, in 1994, the Bowmeister's 13-year-old son, Eric, he was playing out behind the house in a wooded area. And this is when he found a partially buried human skeleton. Yeah, right in the backyard. Yeah. And he showed this to his mom. Yeah, he comes running in the house carrying a skull. Yeah. And when Herb had got home from work, she showed to him. Yeah. And he just sort of brushed it off. You know, yeah, yeah he, he's, he's smooth. Yeah, he told her that his father, you know, he was a doctor, and he had used skeletons in his research, and that after finding one while cleaning out the garage, he just buried it. Yeah, that's what I'd do. Yeah. and But get this. His wife believed him. Yeah. I'm sure he's very uh, manipulative. Yeah. So not long after their second... Either second, she believed him or she just didn't want to deal with it. Yeah. One or the other. Yeah. You know, because I'm sure he would bitch her out. Well, he probably at this point had no reason... Well, she didn't have no to, reason to, you know. to be doubted. Right, right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, Dale, it wasn't long after the second store had opened their thrift store, the business began to lose some money. Mm. And Herb started drinking during the day and acting belligerently. 
to yeah. customers and employees. So it sounds like he's headed toward a downward spiral here. Yeah. And at night, unknown to his wife, Herb cruised gay bars and then retreated to his pool house, mm-hmm. where he spent hours crying like a kid about the dying business. Yep. But his wife was exhausted from worry. And the bills were piling up, and her husband, Herb, acted stranger every day. He's just starting to act like himself, I think. Yeah. I think it's just, everything's just coming to a head at this point. Mm-hmm. But while the Bowmasters were trying to fix their failing business and marriage, a major murder investigation was underway in Indianapolis. Right. This was in 1977. Going back, there was a guy by the name of Virgil Vandegrift. He was a highly respected retired Marion County Sheriff. And he had opened up in 1977 Vandegrift and Associates. It was a private investigation firm in the Indianapolis area. Yeah, specialized in uh, missing person cases. They did. Yeah. So in June of 1994, Vandegrift was contacted by the mother of 28-year-old Alan Broussard, Mm -hmm. who she said was missing. Yeah, he was missing, right. And when she last saw him, he was headed to meet his partner at a popular gay bar called Brothers. Right. And he never came home. No. Yeah. And actually, when he never came home, she actually did call the police to report him missing. And they gave him some, or gave her some kind of deal about it. There was a 30 day wait. Wait, wait yeah. What the heck? On an adult that was gone. And like, I've never heard that. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I don't know if it was just being him being gay or something or. They didn't, they didn't care at the time or probably or not it's possible but it was almost a week later vandegrift received a call from another distraught mom mm-hmm. about her missing son in july roger goodlett who was 32 had left his parents home to go to a gay bar in downtown indianapolis but never arrived correct broussard and goodlett both shared a lifestyle they looked alike and were near the same age right and they had vanished in route to a gay bar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this detective, Vandegrift, distributed missing person posters at gay bars around the city. Yeah, he's trying to find out some information here. He was. See what's going on. Because nobody else could help him. And family members and friends of the young men and customers at gay bars were interviewed. Mm-hmm. And Vandegrift learned that Goodlett was last seen willingly entering a blue car with Ohio plates. Right, so we got a clue anyway. Yes, exactly. Vandegrift also received a call from a gay magazine publisher who told him that several gay men had disappeared in the Indianapolis area over the previous years. Yeah, they said that they were getting calls because, you know, and reports of this been going on. And uh, I'm assuming it's because nobody else is getting help either. You know, they got sons that are missing. It's getting a run around. Yeah, getting a run around. So they're just reporting like, look, you need to let people know something's going on. All these guys are missing, but nobody seems to be seeing it. Yeah, but Vandegrift was convinced they were dealing with a serial killer. Yeah. And he took his suspicions to the Indianapolis Police Department. But unfortunately, missing gay men were apparently a low priority. Man, this got Dahmer all over it, don't it? It does. Possibly the men had left the area without telling their families to freely practice their gay lifestyles. Yeah, that's what they do. Yeah. We're just going to run, run away. to. That's what they were being told. Good Lord. And this Vandegrift also learned about an ongoing investigation into multiple murders of gay men in Ohio that began in 1989 and ended in the mid-1990s. Bodies had been dumped along Interstate 70 and were dubbed the I-70 murders in the media. Yeah, it was a good many of them, too. And four of these victims were from Indianapolis. Now, weeks after Vandegrift 
distributed the posters, he was contacted by Tony. This was a pseudonym by his request. Right. Who said he was certain that he had spent time with the person responsible for Goodlett's disappearance. Tony said he went to the police and the FBI, but they just ignored his information. And Vandergriff set up a series of interviews, and there was a bizarre story that unfolded, Dale. Mm-hmm. Now, Tony said he was at a gay club when he noticed another man who seemingly was over, overly captivated by a missing person's poster of his friend, Roger Goodlett. Yeah, he said he was just sitting there staring at it. Yeah. As he continued to watch the man, something in his eyes convinced Tony that the man had information about Goodlett's disappearance. And to try to learn more, Tony introduced himself. And the man said his name was Brian Smart. Yeah, he walked up to him and he said, yeah, that's my friend, friend Roger, on that poster. And said the guy was looking at it, he said, kind of like, didn't really want to talk about that no more, but he sure was interested in Tony. Yes. So he turned and... Got him a drink, and then he said, start talking. But like we said, he he told him his name was Brian Smart. Yes. And he was a landscaper from Ohio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and every time uh, Tony tried to talk about Goodlett, he just kind of was evasive and just kind of kept changing the subject. That's right. Even though he was sitting there staring at the picture for who knows how long. But as the evening went on, Brian Smart invited Tony to join him for a swim at his house. Right. And he told him that he was temporarily living there doing some landscaping for the new owners who yeah, so, were away. Yeah, they were away, so come on over. We got. And he said, there's a mansion. Come on over and check it out. Yeah, so Tony agreed and got into Brian Smart's Buick. But you had, know the whole time he's thinking, this guy's the, the guy that something happened to yeah. my, from my friend. So he's like, man, doing his investigative work, but God Almighty, this is scary. The the creep needle was off the chart, wasn't it? Oh, God, it had to be. Yeah. He thought it was. You wait till he gets to the, <laughs> to the damn pool. But Tony agreed and got into Brian Smart's Buick, with which with had the Ohio the, plates. Ohio plates, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Tony was not familiar with northern Indianapolis, so he could not say where the house was. Right. He knew he was going a long way out of town, but he wasn't sure exactly where he was, but it was a good way away. Yeah. But he described it as a area of having horses and a large homes. Mm-hmm. And he also described a split rail fence and a sign that read, farm something yeah he couldn't catch it all it was dark and plus he was driving you know yeah or riding with the guy and the sign was in front of the driveway that brian smart had turned into correct now tony described a large home which he and smart entered through a side door and he described the interior of the home as being packed with furniture and boxes and he followed him through the house and down the steps to the bar and to the pool area Mm -hmm. which had all the mannequins set up around the pool that'd be like god almighty i gotta get out of here yeah now this brian smart that i'm using air quotes with offered tony a drink which he turned down yeah he said that uh, no thanks because i'm i'm pretty wasted right now i don't i don't need another one right now that's what he told him and i really think at this point that tony's downplaying it is thinking to make him think he's more messed up than he actually is yes i think so too right because he's trying to find out some stuff here but brian smart excused himself and when he returned he was a lot more talkative. Oh, yeah, because he was pissed off when yeah. he didn't did want to take that drink. So I don't know if he had something in the drink, you know, like to, to take him out, kind of a Dahmer kind of thing. Yeah. Or sedate him or something. Yeah, yeah. or if he just really mad that he didn't want to drink no more or something. But yeah, he said he was really infuriated until he went to the bathroom and then he came back out. Yeah. All giddy and stuff. But Tony suspected that 
he had snorted some cocaine. Yeah. And at some point, Brian Smart brought up the topic of autoerotic asphyxiation. Yeah. Which is out of the blue, yeah. And uh, if anybody don't know what that is, that's receiving sexual pleasure while choking or being choked. Correct. And asked if Tony would do it to him. Yeah, at first he asked Tony, you know, if he was into it and stuff and talking about it. And he's like, eh, because here, you can do it to me first. Mm-hmm. So, so Tony went along and choked Brian Smart mm-hmm. with this hose while he masturbated. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this happened to have a hose right here. And Brian Smart then said it was his turn to do it to Tony. Mm-hmm. And again, Tony went along as Brian Smart began choking him. Right. And it became obvious that he was not going to let go. Yeah. Um, Brian Smart kind of played it off as this is something that he had just learned, whatever. He, but he knew, Tony knew when he started, this was not something he just learned. He was. He was telling me, I got this new trick. Yeah. He was serious about what, what was going on. So yeah. He, so instead of panicking, he's really smart about it. So Very he, smart. He kind of just pretended to pass out. Yeah. Like it was like too strong. And then he said, that, uh, then Smart just released the hose and he started going, Tony? Tony? And then finally he opened his eyes. Yeah. And that's kind of. I think it shook him a little bit when he did because he, he's like, oh, 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 I'm, you, you scared me. He said, you know, people could die like this, you know, mm-hmm. have an accident or something, you know. So, oh, my gosh, kind of kind of scared me there. Yes. Yeah. But Tony was considerably larger than Brian Smart. Yeah, he's, he's, he's like six foot five or six foot seven. Or yeah. Like Which was probably why he survived. Yeah. And he also refused drinks that Brian Smart had prepared earlier. Which is another reason, I think. Yeah. It was also reported that after this, you know, they partied for a little bit, and then Brian kind of was kicked back in the thing and kind of went to sleep. Yes. Brian being Herb, before I get too confused, but uh, had fallen asleep. So Tony used this, you know, this time wisely. So he kind of got up and went upstairs to look around. And see Snooping around the house, yeah. And he noticed that there were several children's rooms and a lot of women's stuff. And he's like, hmm, this guy, which he already thought the guy was using a fake name. He's pretty sure that this is guy's living in this house. This is not somebody working here just by the the state of the house yeah and then uh went back down and he's still sleeping snoring in the chair and uh so he sat down and he grabbed up his pants and started going through his pants trying to find his wallet and at this time is when brian started stirring around a little bit so he put the pants back down and sat back down and then when he woke up he's like yeah i think i'm ready to go back to town now yeah he's like okay fine get your stuff and let's go yeah so he Took uh, Tony back to Indianapolis. All right. And they agreed to meet again the following week. Mm-hmm. But to learn more about Brian Smart, this investigator Vandegrift arranged to have Tony and Smart followed at their second meeting. Right. Well, before that, Tony went to the police the next day. Yes, he did. And told him what was going on and told him what he thought this guy had done and told him that he thought he had done it to his friend. And they basically laughed him out of the police station. Mm-hmm. So that's when he got a hold of Vandergriff. Yes. Yeah, and see if he could work that angle. So he was going to follow him at their second meeting. Yeah, because uh, Herb started calling him, you know, trying to meet back up with him. And said, you know, we had a lot of fun. You know, you're a good sport. We should do this again. So he kept he kept calling him, in which, you know, Tony was like, eh, I don't know about this. And then finally they figured that this is the only way they're going to find out anything on, on uh, Herb is if they can get him to meet up, at least they could get a, a license plate number or something, you know, or maybe even fall him back to his house. I think a Herb, who was Brian Smart, right. was wising up. Uh, they they he, probably, he probably could feel it, yeah. Yeah. Vandergriff was follow, going to follow them to their second meeting, but Brian Smart never showed up, Dale. Mm, right. Yeah, so, yeah, like I said, he was getting wise. He's getting wise to, to the gimmick here. Yeah. But believing Tony's story, Vandergriff 
turned again to the police, but this time he contacted Mary Wilson. Right. She was a detective who worked in missing persons who Vandegrift highly respected. And she drove Tony to the wealthy areas outside Indianapolis, hoping that he might recognize something, even the house that Brian Smart took him to. Right. But you remember they went at at night. Yes. It was a place he did not know and he didn't know the area at all. All he remembered, it was a lot. So it was a really nice and huge house. But the place they went to, they were actually pretty close. But all the houses out there were, you know, huge houses. And he knew that it said something farm by the road. But there were lots of houses out there that said something farm by the road. Yeah. So they did good, but they they kind of come up empty. Yeah. I mean, if you don't know the area, it's just hard to recognize what you saw at night. Oh, I guess. definitely. Everything's changed. Yeah. So now Tony, he met Brian Smart again a year later when they happened to stop at the same bar. Well, Tony was actually at the bar, and he seen Brian Smart pull up in his car. Yes. And he seen him getting out of his car. So he looked at a friend of his, and he goes, hey, I got to run inside quick. Will you get the license plate off number off this car? So his buddy did that for him. While he went in, he got the license plate and the make and model of the car. That's right. So I guess he did that that way when uh, Herb got out. He wouldn't see Tony being a big dude. You know, it'd be hard to miss. So he got his buddy to do it for him. Mm-hmm. Another smart thing. It is very smart. Yes. So anyway, they give that that information. They give that to uh, Detective Wilson. And then she run the plate, and it didn't come back to Brian Smart. No. It came back to Herb Bowmeister. Herb Bowmeister. Yeah. And as uh, Wilson discovered more about Herb Bowmeister, she agreed with Vandegriff. Tony had narrowly escaped becoming a victim of a serial killer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, Miss Wilson, she is not one to be uh, subtle. No. She's a go-getter, man. Because <laughs> she went to the thrift store yep. to confront Bowmeister. Straight in. Telling him that he was a suspect in an investigation into several missing men. Mm-hmm. And she asked that he let investigators search his home. Yeah. And he refused and told her that in the future... She should go directly to his lawyer. Yeah, he kind of went into shock, I think, when she got there and said that uh, he kind of got the look on, pale look on his face and like he wanted to run in four different ways at the same time. All the blood just ran out of his head. Yeah, I'm sure all the thoughts was like, oh, shit, this is quick. Because she she just walked straight up there and told him. It wasn't no dancing around this. Yeah, so get this. Mary Wilson, she goes to his wife, Juliana. Yeah. Telling her what she had told Herb. Hoping to get her to agree to the search. Yeah. I guess turn them against each other. That's right. But she was, <laughs> she was shocked. Yes, of course. But she refused. Yeah. No, no, not happening here. Mm-mm. Stand by my man. So next, Mary Wilson tried to get the Hamilton County officials to issue a search warrant, but they refused. They saying, refused too. Saying there wasn't enough evidence to um, issue a search warrant. Right. And I think uh, this Hamilton County officials didn't want to bother anybody or make anybody look bad especially somebody who was a outstanding uh person in the community was given to making money and giving to charity and all that they just didn't want to take a chance on hurting that yeah i think yeah i get it so herb appeared to suffer an emotional breakdown over the next six months and by june juliana she had reached her limit man Mm. the children's bureau canceled the contract they had with the thrift store and she was facing bankruptcy. Mm. And the fairy tales she had been living began to dissipate, as did her loyalty to her husband, Herb. Mm. And the haunting image of the skeleton that her son, Eric, had discovered two years earlier had not left her mind since 
she first spoke to Mary Wilson. Well, heck no. Mm-mm. Be all you think about. So Juliana decided to file for divorce and tell Mary Wilson about the skeleton. Yeah, it took her a while to do this, though. You yep. know, because first she she wouldn't do it. She was standing by her man. She was believing, you know, that this couldn't happen. And then something else happened, and then finally she's like, eh. The only way they can do anything is they took the story about the skeleton. Yes. You know, her, her lawyer was like, look, I think you need to go tell them about this because something's going on. And she would also let the detectives search the property. Yes. And Herb and Eric were visiting his mom at Lake Wawasi. Yep. And Juliana picked up the phone and called her lawyer. Yeah, because what happened to he is that he, um, uh, without her knowing, he picked up the boy from school and then took off with him. Yes. To the, uh, And then took a bunch of money out of the bank that they had. Well, I, guess, I think he emptied the bank account. And then uh, said that he needed some vacation time with the son and left. And that's when she said, okay, you need to come over here and search the property. So on June the 24th of 1996, Mary Wilson and three Hamilton County officers walked down to the grassy area next to the Bowmeister's patio. And as they looked closely, they could see that small rocks and pebbles where the Bowmeister's children had played were bone fragments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, she showed them like, where they found the skulls. Yes, like, yeah. and forensics confirmed that they were human bones. Crazy, man. Yep, just feet away from the house. And the following day, police and firemen began an excavation. Mm-hmm. And bones were everywhere. Even the neighbor... Uh, his property had bones. Yeah, his and, body had almost full skeletons. Yes, and early searches found 5,500 bone fragments and teeth. And it was estimated that the bones were from 11 men, though only four victims could be identified. It was Goodlett, who was 34, Stephen Hale, 26, Richard Hamilton, 20, and Manuel Resendez, who was 31. Yeah, and I think he had, he had burned a lot of these stuff and because um, I guess he had done that and busted them up because, I mean, 11 men is like 5,000 pieces and fragments, so it was just pieces, you know. He was burning the bodies and stuff yeah. on the property? Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming he was probably doing that while she was away. Yeah, because she would leave. They would go for weeks at a time. Right. Yeah. So Juliana, she started to panic. Oh, yeah, because she think now he's gone. And he's got her son. He's got her son, right. Yeah. The son who found the skull. So the authorities got to panic too, and Herb and Julia now—they were in their beginning, you know, beginning the stage of a divorce. Yes, and it was decided that before the discoveries of the that the Bowmeisters hit the news, yeah, Herb would be served with custody papers demanding that their son Eric be returned to Juliana. Yep, and when they found him, he he they served him the papers, and he turned over Eric without incident. Yeah, to go back to his mama, figuring it was just some legal maneuvering. That's right. Now, why they don't pick him up here and take him back for question, I don't know. That blows my mind. That's the biggest thing in this whole damn case. They are searching his property, and they just get Eric and leave. Yeah, they didn't take him in to question him about what's going on in his property. Yeah, well, they didn't go. Yeah, why you got uh, teeth and bones in your backyard here, son? Him, what, what do you know about this? Tell us something. Yeah. Yeah. But they didn't. Nope. So once news of the Bones discovery was broadcast, Herb vanished. Yep. He took off. Yeah. So, yeah, he took off, and then he would call his brother to send him some money. He had a brother named Richard. Yeah. To send him, he needed some money. So he sent him some money, and it wasn't long after that. He sent, it, he sent it for more money, and that's when his brother knew something was up. Well, he told him he was on a business trip and needed some money. Right. Yeah. That's what he told him. Then he come back and ask for more money. Like, mm, something's up here. 
So shortly after the authorities come and got Eric, the son, and took him back to his mama, Herb went to Canada. Yeah. And, and at some point, he was actually uh, pulled over by the cops. Well, no, he he was, uh, a, the cops come up, he was sleeping under a bridge. Yeah, in his car. In his car. Yeah. And they uh, knocked on the window and see what was going on. And he noticed that he had a, a big pile of videotapes in the back seat. Yes. But uh, he didn't say nothing about it. Just, you know, he told him basically what was going on. He'd been driving. He's just uh, up here, you know, sightseeing or whatever. And he was tired. He was really tired and pulled over to sleep. So he's like, told him, well, he couldn't do that. So, you know, he just carried on. Yeah, that's right. Let it go. See you later. Have a good day. But now, like we said, with a warrant for his arrest, Herb fled to Ontario, Canada. And he was at the Piney Park. This was on Lake Huron. And there, Dale, he shot himself with a three fifty seven Magnum. Mm. in the head yeah but prior to him committing suicide he left a three-page suicide note written on yellow notebook paper and he said that he regretted messing up the park i wonder if he is intended on cheating himself outside the car at first why why you know this is just sorry about this mess in your park go Mm. ahead i don't know but he wrote that he felt badly about his broken marriage and his failing businesses but he didn't mention anywhere in the note about the remains of the victims or, or, crime. or anything yeah. yeah and he described items on his trip mentioning his intention to kill himself in a different place but seeing the children there had changed his mind and he said in his note that he was going to eat a peanut butter sandwich and go to sleep that was his final meal yes hmm. so they found him dead i think it was about eight days it was eight late. days later yeah. yeah it was yeah and like you said before when they were searching his property the neighbor had came over and said that he had seen bones on his property. Mm-hmm. And that's when they went over there to look. And it was like a, uh, I don't know if it was like a creek or some kind of water source coming down. But they were just basically laying out there, almost full rib cages and stuff, just laying out there. And he had seen them from there come over there and got the cops and went back over there and found them. And I think there were like at least four over there. Yes. Crazy. So it was just, I don't know if he was throwing them out there and just left them. And there was also a bunch of beer cans, you know, he liked to drink mgd miller genuine draft yes a lot of beer cans out there were like was he going out there and visiting you know those those remains or was did he have those when he i mean i don't know it's just just when he was burning the bodies and burying them or, right yeah, yeah did he carry stuff out there with him or is this when he was going back to like re- revisit the crime you know to go out there and because he didn't keep trophies or nothing so maybe he was just keeping well i guess he apparently was but you know yeah. what i mean not the not the typical way that they do it but it, i mean you go out there and there's bodies all in your backyard. Yeah. Or bones, anyway. But let's go back to them videotapes that the cop had spotted in the back seat of his car. Okay. Because they never found them things again. No. They, were, they weren't they were there when uh, they discovered his body. Right. Now, they went, they went in and, and searched the house. They did find some stuff. They did find a hidden camera down there in the pool room. Yes, they did. A videotape camera, a VHS camera. Mm-hmm. And but they did not find any tapes, so we're assuming that those tapes were probably the tapes from those murders, yeah, or, or some murders, some whatever activities. No way to no way to prove it because whatever activities back, took care of at the at the pool, yeah, right. Whatever so they did. When yeah. they found, like you said, when they found him in the car, the tapes were gone. Yes, so no, there's no no idea what Unless happened to them or what was on them. Threw them in a river somewhere, or Could have, yeah. yeah, threw them in a trash or something. Just got rid of them. He did, but the. Hamilton County Coroner's Office, they have appealed to the public requesting anyone with missing family members from the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s in the Indianapolis area to complete a DNA test in effort to help identify victims' remains. Mm -hmm. And the victims 
that were found on her Bowmeister's property. Well, so far. Yes, they were. We're going to list their names here. Is, uh, okay. John Lee Bayer, who went by Johnny. He was 20 years old, went missing on May the 28th of 1993. Uh, there was a Jeffrey Allen, who went by Jeff Jones. He was 31, went missing on July the 6th of 1993. Richard Douglas Hamilton Jr., who was 20, went missing on July 31st of 1993. And uh, Manuel Resendez was 31, went missing on August the 6th of 1993. He was last seen going into a gas station. This is May, July, July, August. Yes. And he was last seen going into a gay bar in downtown Indianapolis. And then Alan Lee Livingston, 27, went missing on the same day as Manuel did, August 6th. And his remains were recovered with the initial search of the farm in 1996. But get this, his remains were unidentified until this year of October. Last month. Of 2023. Yeah. Yeah, so that's an update in this case. Man, that gave me chills. Yeah. There was another victim, Stephen Sperlin Hale, is 28, went missing on April 1st of 1994. So that's a big gap there. Yes, it is. Hmm. And Alan Wayne Broussard that we mentioned, mm-hmm. that was a friend of uh, Roger Goodlett, mm-hmm. went missing on June the 6th of 1994. Right. And then there was Roger Allen Goodlett, was 33, went missing on July 22nd of 1994. So those are all pretty close together. Yes, they are. Another one was Michael Frederick, who went by Mike Kern. He was 45, and he was last seen on March the 31st of 1995. So that'd be almost a year later. Yeah. So we don't really know how many victims there were. I know Tony said when he was talking to him, and they were talking about when when, uh, Herb was calling him, after that first meeting and they were talking some on the phone and then finally tony was like you know what's going on you don't need to be doing this you could you could kill somebody you know and he's like well you know accidents does happen and they've happened before and he goes well what do you mean he goes well you know because the way he got off on this thing he said you just have to look in their face and you see the face the color changes and their lips start to change and sometimes crack and their eyes start to bulge out and he, that's what he was getting off on he got off on that yeah yeah they were talking about that stuff and he goes well you know accidents do happen and that's what i call them because you know because you know something happened he goes what do you mean he goes well it's happened before he said happened before he said well how many accidents has it been he goes eh, i don't know maybe 50 60 50 or 60 <laughs> yeah so i mean we really don't know I mean, because he killed himself, so there's no way to find out anything. All we know is, and they didn't really find nothing except for the, the you know, the remains as far as outside on the grounds. So it's, it's really hard to figure out what happened, at, you know, to these guys. You know, and these bodies they found on I-70, this was before that they moved to that Fox Hollow farm. Right. Well, see, he also had a job as a traveling salesman. And a lot of people think at this time he was doing the same thing, but he was doing it while traveling. Yeah. Cause, because as soon as they bought this big this house with all this acreage, yeah, the bodies, they quit showing up on the side of the road. Yeah. So a lot of people, you know, are saying that he was the I-70 killer as well. That's what they're saying. Yeah. Very, very possible. I mean, there was a bunch of those. There was like 11 that they found. Mm-hmm. 11, 11 people. Yeah. Or bodies. And then, I don't want to but they have no way to connect them to Yeah, can't prove, can't prove nothing, really. 
You know, me and you were talking earlier about this case, and there's no telling what all Herb Bomeister was involved with. No. I mean, he could have been worse than Jeffrey Dahmer. He could have been. I mean, he could have been into cannibalism. He could have been into... Well, you know, a lot of people think he was into necrophilia. Yeah. You know, because we don't know what he was doing with these guys after he killed him. I mean, he was getting off, you know, seeing the, their face as he was taking their life. And he can call it what he wants to call it, but, I mean... The, he definitely tried to kill Tony, or he did. Well, I guess he didn't try to kill him. He, but, uh, you know, Tony was smart the way he got out of it. But like you said, he was way big. You know, maybe he got to thinking, maybe I can't overpower this dude if I wanted to because Herb wasn't that big a dude. No, he was a scrawny little guy. Yeah. So, I don't know. This is just a lot of a lot of craziness going on. We don't know how far or what, to at what extent happened to these people. But uh, it wasn't good, that's for sure. That's right. So, this guy could have a, I mean, I don't know, a huge body count. You just don't know. Very, very possible. I mean, um, hell, there was a, a, a huge body count on his property, not counting the, the I 70 killer or anything else that could possibly have happened. Whew. But there's also a little side note to this. There was an independent documentary film titled The Haunting of Fox Hollow Farm that explores the crimes and the possibility of hauntings of the grounds there at the Bowmeister estate. Yeah, at this time, you can find it on Tubi. You can watch it for free. Yeah, but they claim that the the house and the property there is haunted. They've seen yeah, apparitions. The, the new owners, stuff. yeah, had to had to, the ghost hunters come out and do independent stuff. And then, actually, the, I mean, we watched this. So, actually, they had several come out that didn't even know anything about where they were going. That's right. To see what, you know, what they found out. So, it's, it's pretty wild. Yeah. But, anyway, that is the case of Herb Bowmeister. Herb Bowmeister. Yeah. Pretty sick individual. We'll never know the extent of his his crimes yeah we sure don't and uh, we don't know if you know if they could have done something when he was young if they actually did treatment if it would have changed the outcome or not it's hard to tell back in who knows uh-huh. but yeah pretty sad story for all these 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 guys but thanks to that mary wilson yeah yeah she was a go-getter man she yeah, her and the private eye man vandegrift vandegrift they're the heroes in this story because and well let me take that back tony is probably the hero in this story to put himself in danger like that to go find out what the hell's going on. Yeah. He is the one who actually broke it open and was smart enough to to keep keep it going to find somebody who would believe him and dig in to actually find out what's going on yeah. with, with this guy. That's right. All right, Dale. We're going to get out of here, man. Yeah, man. Let's roll. We want everyone to be safe. Please be careful and always be aware of your surroundings. And we want everyone to have a safe and happy Thanksgiving. Yes. Because the next episode could be about you. This is the Crack House Chronicles. Chronicles.